Greetings, dear listener. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I'm sitting here with uh, Jack Butler. I know what you're all thinking. It's so weird that Jack and I both have new haircuts, but we can't talk about that right now. Um, Amazing how they could tell. I know. It just you can sense it. It's in the air. Atmosphere is electric. Uh, so this is a... This is. I hope it's not outdated. I don't think it is. I haven't listened to it in a while. Jack, is it particularly outdated? It's timeless. It's timeless. Okay. Uh, I recorded uh, a while back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, the morning after I gave a speech uh, for the Acton Institute's Acton University big conference thingamabob. Uh, I had got together with my friend David Bonson of the aptly named Bonson Group who is also something of a, well, he's certainly an author. He wrote The Crisis of Responsibility, um, but he's also something of an intellectual in his spare time. David is insanely knowledgeable about things theological and whatnot, and we did a podcast a few months, oh, about almost a year ago now, right? Um, the first one. Oh, yeah. I thought you were talking about this one. And I, I didn't expect it to be popular, and it turned out to be remarkably popular with a lot of people. You might want to go back and listen to that one, too, where we talked about his book, and we talked about all sorts of theological Christian doctrines and whatnot. Anyway, we were together again in the same place. We decided to do another podcast. I did, you know, pandering, pandering to the craven sort of uh, just-give-me-that-dopamine-fix passions of the audience, I started the podcast with a strange conversation about the about theonomy, and then it got uh, a little egg-heady. So it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy it, too. And in the meantime, before we get all that started, since I'm, I'm not really going to have a closing thing on this, or am I going to have a closing thing on this, Jack? I don't think I'm going to have a closing thing. Do you thing. want one? I don't know. I won't have a closing thing. If people could... Um, Please, if you want, subscribe to the G file at reagan35x.com. Uh, you don't have to, uh, uh, it won't only be for the G file forever, but we're trying to build up that list. We're trying to rebuild the list that the G file had before I left National Review. I should say the National Review has been great to us, um, but we couldn't take our list with us. And also, sounds like people liked. The audio ver or most people like the audio version of the G file. I didn't love it myself. I got to figure out how to do it in a way that sounds natural, um, or at least sounds good. And but uh, I think we're going to keep trying to experiment with it. We've got some exciting podcasts coming up, but we didn't want this one to sit on the shelf any longer. Even though it could have sat for a thousand years, and people would still weep from the wisdom they got from it. Etched in Redulian crystals, discovered in the chapter house. Uh, on uh, yeah, never new Arrakis. Yes. Well, actually, I'm uh, I'm I'm getting onto that one next. But but enough about enough about Dune. Okay. Never, never enough about it. <laughs> um, but anyway, thanks a bunch, and I hope you like this episode. And there'll be new ones coming very shortly. And until then, I'll see you next time. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not the end, so I don't know what you I, do. I know you confused me. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another uh, exciting episode of the Remnant <laughs> Podcast. Uh, I'm talking to you from a grant uh, from a GW Marriott room in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was speaking for the Acton University Conference, part of the Acton Institute. It was a grand time, and uh, my uh, longtime friend and uh, returning Remnant 
guest. Uh, Dave Bonson is here. He's speaking at the conference too. We said, hey, let's, let's, let's do some rank podcastery. So uh, Dave's in my room. Uh, David, thanks for coming back on. Well, thanks for having me in your room. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) It just so because uh, you know because I am nothing but transparent with our listeners. We don't. This is being recorded on the twentieth of June, but I'm not sure when it's going to air because I'm leaving from here for Alaska, um, where the bears definitely want to kill me, and um, and I and Jack is still in Italy. So this will probably not even make it into someone's computer until I get back next week. So we will not. We will eschew the rankest of punditry. Um, and go big think. And since David is a uh, major free market theorist kind of guy, as well as a um, part-time theologian type, um, type, right? I, mean, yeah. I don't think you'd call, your dad was a theologian. He was, and and I have worked for almost thirty years to get the theologian stuff out of me. But you it know, keeps dragging you, you back can, in. You can take the boy out of the cult. So. <laughs> well, yeah. um, so uh, all right, so just just to start things off with an amuse-bouche that everyone can have access to and everyone is interested in. Last night I was listening to you and Father Sirico talk about something, and you both kind of verbally rolled your eyes at theonomy. Uh, what is the difference between theonomy and theocracy? <laughs> uh, well, there is a big difference, and it's actually a little tricky. I don't even know if Father Sirico knows. You know, my dad wrote the book on theonomy and, and was a very prominent theonomist. But it is a word that has no meaning anymore because so many people mean so many things by it uh-huh. that I would uh, never under any circumstances be willing to claim the title for myself now. But that has a lot more to do with what so many people identify it with than, than what my dad would have meant by it, for sure. example. Uh, you, ben Sass said it on your podcast once and I was intrigued. He kind of made it a passing comment. And again, he was really using it to criticize the sort of generic idea of theocracy. Mm-hmm. But I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I don't hear the word used a lot. I think those that you've, we've now covered last night and the Ben Cassass podcast the last two times in 10 years I've heard the word. And I don't think you're going to hear it again <laughs> for another 10. But um, it's essentially a reference to, quite literally, means the law of God. I mean, right. that's what the actual breakout of the of the words would mean. And, and in my dad's case, it was the position theologically... That for Christians in the New Covenant, that the Old Covenant law of God still has efficacy, still has relevance in, in our life. Uh, there's no Christian who doesn't believe that. Uh, we say Old Covenant, mean Old Testament versus well, New Testament. That's right. Like that. There's continuity from the Old Testament to New Testament. So it's commonly in Christian circles called covenant theology, the notion that there is continuity from the Old Covenant with Israel to the New Covenant. And... Um, that, you know, Jesus constantly quoted Old Testament law, so the notion that he thought all of it was thrown out. Mm. But after the Protestant Reformation, um, well, the Westminster Confession, they talk about the idea that the moral law, the equity of the moral law still applies. And that's easy enough. And the ceremonial aspects of the law don't, that there was fulfillment in Christ from animal sacrifice and so forth. And, th- and that was explicitly stated in New Testament passages. So that's pretty easy. But it's that judicial and civil law stuff that gets a little tricky. And so my own view is that there is so much complexity post-theocratic Old Testament Israel that what it would look like for a government in a reasonably Christianized society, and what I mean by that is just simply a society with a lot of Christian people, not that there is some sort of theocratic and Mm -hmm. structural uh, imposition of that, but like the Puritans and Pilgrims, for example, 17th century, 
there was a lot of implementation on a local level of certain laws that were based on principles from from Christian theology, and I wouldn't see anything problematic about that, but not in a compulsory sense. It would be a lot of what you talk about on a local level. They say, hey, in our town, as George Will said in your podcast, how furious he was when he couldn't get a drink in right, a dry right. county. Well, that's where all that stuff kind of Yeah, see, I mean, that, that's the price I would pay for freedom, because you know how I feel about getting a drink. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I guess I guess just to, to, to dumb it down for me and for some listeners who might get lost in the weeds here, is it that theonomy is a society based upon biblical law and theocracy is a society where religious leaders are the rulers? Yeah, so the distinction would be that in the idea of theonomy as the, as the way some of the, let's call it, soft theonomist proponents mm-hmm. would advocate, they're holding it up as what ought to be. Not that a government ought to impose it. They're saying it would organically form because there's so much evangelism, so right. much uh, influence from the gospel and society that people would naturally want, would kind of migrate towards an ethic that is highly informed by the law of God. Well, what a lot of people will do, and this is where I'm, I'm, I, it does kind of rile me up, is they'll say, no, 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 we don't believe in that stuff. That was Leviticus. It only applied to Israel. Okay, that's, that's fine. Exegetically, I get that. In theory, however, then they'll go on to bash it. Mm. And what I would say is, look, whatever those laws were, they were written by, you know, God. Mm -hmm. And David did write like 150 chapters in Psalms saying how much he loved the law of God. So we can talk about the complexity of what it looks like in modern times, but we can't bash it. It it reflects the eternal and changing character of God. So a theocrat, I think, is would be more analogous today. There's so few Christian theocrats. It would be more Islamic. Mm-hmm. I, I think a jihadi uh, sort of compulsory, totalitarian implementation of it that is statist. Okay. And and so the reason why Father Sirico and I were sort of laughing or, or or smiling last night about the notion of the autonomy, it's not a theological thing mm-hmm. per se. Because it means too many different things to too many people. It's a sociological thing. Mm-hmm. And so I've talked to you a bit over the years about Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. See, no one knows this. Well, this is the world Ron Paul came from. And that's how I met Ron when I was a very young guy. Mm-hmm. Is that there were some high profile, quote unquote, theonomists. And, and, and I'm not saying Ron was a theonomist. But they largely centered around the belief that all taxes were wrong uh, the, the all money and modern fiat money was mm-hmm. wrong. And it was, uh, now, you know, Ron used to be real consistent about his love of Murray Rothbard. Abraham Lincoln was a war hero, a war criminal. War criminal, right. All these things. That was sort of the sociological backdrop of theonomy. And that's the, the kind of community that Father Sirico and I were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the world that I come from in the sense of, uh, I find it repulsive, um, and yet uh, there, there's obviously you know overlapping characters right. in it. Sort of like for for a while the and this is deep in the weeds for some listeners. I apologize, but there was a branch of there still is, but there was a branch of self-described libertarians who uh, that Ron Paul was sort of part of that were. Um, const- over at the LouRockwell.com era, you know, yeah. site, who seem to be most eager to make defenses of, um, states' rights in the Jim Crow context. Yeah. And, and, or even of slavery in the, you know, in, the, in that way as the state rights. And which always seems so baffling to me that, 
you know, libertarians for, for slavery is to me one of the, you know, it's right up there with jumbo shrimp, right? Yeah. And, um, but those guys called themselves libertarians, but what they were was a very specific subset of people who call themselves libertarians. And so what you're talking about with the theonomists is that, yeah, they call themselves theonomists or whatever, but they didn't own, they didn't necessarily in, in, absolute terms own the term or define the term they were just sociologically one group that went by it yeah and i don't think that the term had a lot of currency as it, uh it, they went by that term and then once that term began being used in let's say the 1970s in certain theological circles that was the group who would go by the term today the camp that would sort of argue that there's just a lot we can learn from biblical revelation about how society ought to be ordered would include the Chuck Colsons, Marvin Olasky, uh-huh. you know, very uh, uh, mainstream. Sure. I mean, it's very hard these days. And I'm encouraged by this, not discouraged. It's very hard to find Christians that don't believe that there's a lot to learn about order in the modern world from Scripture. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the theonomic world, I think it had a lot more to do either with, let's say, they had a kind of old Confederate agenda, they had a tax evasion agenda. It was generally a socio-political sure. uh, world, and then they found exegetical kind of sprinkling they could do that that helped juxtapose it all together. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, as as listeners know, sometimes I just. I like to pander to the lowest common denominator yeah. audience and, and open with these really purient base topics like theonomy versus the, theocracy. Um, but I was, ju- I was just intrigued by it last night because I, I, as a sort of wanderer in various intellectual circles, I'm always intrigued when people get a hint of a frisson of passion about strange terms that uh, most people don't know. And I, I always like these kinds of arguments. Well, and I think you're, apparently your listeners do too, because uh, you, when we talked last time about the, the use of various eschatology, uh-huh. eschatological nomenclatures, and, and you had talked with, was it Christine Rosen on, yeah, on, on creationism? Our post-millennialism, I can never pronounce it. It's post-millennialism. Post-millennialism and pre-millennialism. And correct. And then, and then you, you were asking her the eschatological views within the creationist world. And so there's these different categories and they overlap or don't overlap and all that. But then it seemed like the last podcast, a lot of listeners were really interested in it. And yeah. No, I, I was, I, I, no offense to you, but like, I was surprised by how into it a lot of people were. Not um, taken, because yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, I like this stuff, but and and what sometimes listeners don't always appreciate is that this podcast is largely for my interest. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And, and it just so happens that we have a lot of overlapping interests, sure. so it makes me a fan. I, I'll say this, Joan, I mean this. I actually think the topic... Uh, not the sort of nuanced background and kind of niche little trivia about past evangelical camps and whatnot. Broader, this whole thing with Frenchism and sure. first things. And it is forcing, I think, an interesting conversation because there's a whole lot of Christians that have in the past said, yeah, I think we identify with classical liberalism. Right. And all of a sudden they're saying, wait a second, we're getting our, you know, what's kicked in the public square. We don't like it. So what are other options? And it's forcing them to kind of wrestle with their lack of a fully formed ideology of their faith in the public square. And I think that it will be healthy in the end for them to come out of it to re-reconcile 
where a Christian worldview is in fact not only compatible, but a precondition to fully functioning classical liberalism. Yeah, so I want to ask you about all this stuff. It does seem like the French Amari Wars have died down by the time we're recording this, but it's clearly, it clearly was a major touchstone, which means, you know, and it's going to come back. But, so I've been going back and looking, you know, because I've written a lot about fusionism over the years and the history of fusionism. And, and I, I was, I wrote the forward to the new release of What is Conservatism, which is sort of like the, Federalist Papers of the Fusionism Debate for ISI a couple of years ago. We actually had, at, at NR, we had a, one of our Buckley Fellows, I think, or an intern, actually wrote a really good piece about how much this is just a replay of the Brent Bozell Sr., not the media research guy, but his dad, uh, who was Bill Buckley's brother-in-law. The fight that we, they had back then between the fusionists, the Frank Meyer crowd, and Bozell. Bozell went off and founded a magazine, Triumph, which was a, I think it was called Triumph, and it was an arch, arch, arch Catholic, one could say ultramontane Catholic, arguably at times just flat out anti-American, because it was anti-modern, um, Catholic magazine, and it got really nasty for a while, and then it turned out that, that view, I, I, and to be honest, I don't know if that was integralist, or just merely post-liberal, I still don't understand some of these things. Uh, but so th- my point being is that these fights on the right have simmered mostly as sort of bar conversation stuff, you know, where you say, well, truth be told, I'm not that big a fan of democracy, blah, 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 blah. And, and this inherent tension, which I've written about a thousand times on the right between liberty and order and freedom and virtue, which should be best understood as a prudential question that sometimes you are on one side and sometimes you are on the other side because it's a trade-off between the two and you have to make reasonable choices about when you go for one or the other. But that sort of compromise has blown up and I did not appreciate how close to the surface this was for an enormous number of my conservative friends that just given sort of the cue from the generalissimo that they were going to flip the tables and say, all right, this, this classical liberal thing is over. We are now nationalists or post-liberal or whatever. Was this going on in the evangelical community more than you realized? Or is it just, is it mostly a Catholic thing right now? That's a great question, but it, it, this is my answer. I think that the reason it wasn't going on in the evangelical community is because the evangelical community was still wrapping its arms around the idea that they wanted to be engaged with the culture. Uh-huh. So you had an escapism and a cultural retreatism going on from the late 19th century to the late 20th century. Then moral majority comes in. They like Reagan. They want to fight the culture war. Although they first came in for Carter because he was a born-again Christian. And then they were like, oh, my God, we made a mistake, and they switched to Reagan. And, and, and I think that, that that was a quick turnaround. Yeah, very quick, very quick. And they didn't have a lot of potency when there was that sort of Carter constituent. And also, a lot of the Carter thing was you had a, a evangelical liberal Democrat, and then you had this sort of a-religious centrist Republican in Ford. So a lot of it was they needed a guy. Right. And they got a guy with Reagan. But it was a sort of perfect storm because you had the abortion thing, the school prayer thing, the, the gay issue was less prevalent then, but they were worried about it. Sure. And they ended up being somewhat right that that issue did, in fact, yeah. re- take a, a lot of shelf space in the culture war later on. But um, 
what I think happened is they had never really formed an ideological foundation for what their engagement in the culture meant. And back to eschatology, by the way, most of them, the Jerry Falwells, Pat Robertsons, these guys who were arguing for getting involved in the Hill, legislation, judicial, most of them also went to bed at night believing that a rapture could come anytime and take us out of the world. Right. And so they had this somewhat, uh, what an operational post-millennialist, what, what, I'm a real post-millennialist. These guys were operational post-millennialists. They believed the world was going to end any second, but they acted like it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And guys like me said, okay, great. Right. That's fine. I'll take that. And so they were working, and you ended up getting some really good long-term groups out of that kind of movement with Alliance Defending Freedom, Alliance Defense Fund, a federal society. You had kind of a, uh, that's where probably their best impacts come is on the judicial side mm-hmm. over the last generation. Well, then all of a sudden, we, here we are four years later, They've gotten killed in the culture war, and now they're getting killed politically. And they say, you know what, we don't, we never engage classical liberalism as a school of thought, as a sort of precondition to functioning in the society. And it, it, to me, there's an impulse that would cause them to say, we don't like it because it's all transactional. It's all, we got to win this particular mm-hmm. battle in front of us by any means necessary, albeit they're usually not. Revolutionary. So that's why when people get so irritated at the seeming incoherence of some of the Christian right uh, on these things, I, I, I get irritated, but I don't get surprised because I don't think most of it is rooted in real intelligible worldview stuff. Mm-hmm. The fusionism that I would uh, identify with, rec- and I think Frank Meyer, I didn't get to know him, but I read so much that I say, okay, I think if he were here today, it would it would be a very similar thing to what it was that there are recognizable differences amongst a whole lot of camps in the faith community and conservatism, mm-hmm. but that politically you have absolutely no chance of building a coalition, and then ideologically it's necessary in a free society for those of us who focus on religious freedom and economic freedom to come together, and so I don't think that it has changed. The problem is. That when we get setbacks, we have a whole lot of people now willing to abandon the kind of entire structure of the liberal order. But fusionism as an ideology and as a pragmatic um, will ultimately be where this thing settles. Yeah. So, I mean, but I, I don't know. It's just, it's so fascinating to me. I'm trying to think of, you know, there are these countries, these societies where for, you know, like Iraq or, you know, uh, Ireland or wherever, where... You have Sunni and Shia living together peacefully in a sort of social compromise for generations. And then in one generation, something happens that causes both sides to race back to this identity, which at this point is not actually lived identity. It's an imagined identity from nostalgia for the past. And they wear their Sunniness or the Shia-ness on their sleeve and they go hammer and tongs at each other. I mean, you could see how this could happen tomorrow with Irish Catholics and Protestants if if the wrong person is killed, if some Archduke Ferdinand of Ireland is killed, where all of a sudden people are like, well, we tried to work with these people, but now we're racing back to our hard identity stuff. It feels a little like that on the right, where these people... I mean, Saurabh Amari, who I like a lot, is a nice guy, he's a smart guy. Two years ago, he was writing this unbelievably eloquent stuff about... The global threats to liberalism and how yeah. what a dangerous time we're in and how both Trump and Bernie Sanders represent this threat. And now it's like, 
I, I think that's partly because of his conversion process, but it's instead of manning the gates against these forces, he's climbed down the wall and he's joined the guys with the battering ram. And it's just very weird to me how many people this is true. Tucker Carlson is another one. Yeah, so there's different dynamics at play in both those cases. Oh, I agree entirely. But, but yeah. sort of, I'll say this. I, I actually am generally critical or at least um, concerned, skeptical of a new convert deciding to really come out quickly with a whole lot of opinions that don't have, have no chance of having been fully formed yet. I mean, yeah. just, they're, they have you, you see this with a lot of people who, uh, like, I know I have friends who converted to, to hardcore Orthodox Judaism, and all of a sudden they, they, they have, they're wagging their fingers at people who've lived an Orthodox Jewish life their entire life. Yeah, you know? th- there's a zeal there that explains it, but it doesn't make it any more uh, advisable. And so, but it, he did two things that really screwed this thing up because it's, I think, it's much like the philosophical conversation we're having now. The way in which people who value a sort of conservative tradition ought to function within and be at peace with and, in fact, embrace uh, the whole idea of the old liberal order is a very important conversation. There's a lot to say about it in the context of the new culture war with technology, right. all these things at play. His his article screwed everything up in the sense that, first of all, he chose David French. Yeah, which is <laughs> bizarre. And so it forced yeah. about 70% of the responses to be people defending, justifiably defending David. Right. Because he just picked the wrong target. Right. And then uh, it, it got all juxtaposed with Trumpism. Right. Which was another totally unnecessary thing. Like, forget Trump, forget all that stuff, which I'm sure we're going to get to. But leave all that aside. The underlying conversation is an important one, and he took two different things to help kind of pollute it and, yeah. and make it a, a poisoned well. But when you strip that stuff out at the end of the day, um, I, obviously, you know, I'm very, very much on the side of this that you are, that David French that, and, and Charlie Cook, who I think has done a very eloquent job. Oh, Charlie's been great on this, yeah. But I do, I am sympathetic to this. There is an irreconcilable tension um, and it's a healthy tension, but all I mean is it's never going to be fully reconciled on this side of glory. When there are schools of thought that are asserting totally different truth claims mm-hmm. and are seeking to coexist in a structurally pluralist society. Now, I'm okay with that tension. I think you're okay with that tension. And, and I think you said this last night at your acting address. Debates in democracy are very good, very right. healthy we don't want full agreement. When you get full agreement, that's when you no longer have a democratic right. society. But I think that the um, the drag queen example that ended up getting used at the middle of all this, the reading to little kids, uh, I think that there is in that a question for people who value classical liberalism as the kind of uh, guiding framework for society and yet uh, hold fast to truth claims in their worldview, they, they ought not take for granted that there is tension there that needs to be reconciled and it shouldn't be dismissed. And when it gets dismissed or when people are a little too hoity-toity in the way they think it'll all work itself out because we're just going to, through time, demonstrate so much gravitas and culture, everyone will be attracted to us, you, then people end up getting frustrated, throwing in the towel, and then they start saying things like, I don't know, Donald Trump reminds them of King David. Yeah. yeah. So so the, a lot of this, I do feel like people in my world brought this on 
because we were a little too dismissive of the reality of what was happening in the culture war. But none of that leads me to say, therefore, let's change, let's make new rules and throw out the Lockean order. But I don't think this was any less attention for John Locke. Competing truth claims are a problem. And I just think they're a healthy problem in a structurally pluralist society. So a couple things. First of all, I think part of, and I think I wrote of this in one of my first of my 4,000 responses to this French stuff. One of the problems we have is that all these people, these, these, one of the reasons why we have this nationalist moment, defined however you want to define it, <coughs> excuse me, pulling a Mick Mulvaney, um, is because the nationalizing force of social media and media writ large. And, and I, what I mean by nationalizing, I don't mean that like Twitter is making us invade Poland. I mean that, that it is, it is, as Megan McArdle has argued, it is making America seem like a much smaller, like a small town. Because everybody is in everybody else's business. You can see how people are living 3,000 miles away and it bothers you when they're living wrong. So let's just stipulate for the sake of argument that some, some man wore a dress in the 19th century and read a book to some kids. I don't, I, I don't know that that happened, but it doesn't seem completely outside the realm of possibility. No one knew about it. I'll stipulate that. Right? It's like a tree falling in the woods. It happened, except for the kids in the room. No one knew about it. But now because of Twitter and Facebook, it's in your grill. It bothers you. And if in the 19th century you had said... Did you hear about this guy on a, he's, he's 10 days away by railroad who wore a dress and read a book to some kids? You would not say, well, we completely have to change the structure of the federal yeah. government in Washington, <laughs> right? There are all sorts of things that happen. You know, it's like when people, it drives me crazy when people say, this is the kind of, this kind of thing should not happen in this country. Well, if it happens in every country, whatever it, it is, you know, someone murdering somebody or something like that, you don't all of a sudden say, well, let's let's tear up the Constitution and start over because you're not going to prevent whatever these bad things were necessarily. And the only reason I bring it up is that so much of this debate is a misconception about how we're supposed to live. This idea that somehow an Iranian convert, an immigrant Iranian convert to Catholicism who lives in New York City should say or think because of a drag queen story hour in Sacramento that we now have to rethink the entire political project since John Locke yeah. is a weird thing. And it, and you're absolutely right. There's all sorts of other stuff going on that would prompt someone very smart to do that. <laughs> well, but it also gets down to fundamentally the definition of a conservative mm -hmm. oh so much of it i'm a movement guy and you've been a movement guy for decades there is an ideology to conservatism and we've both read so much of the history we could define that ideology if we want to do and i'm a buckleyite sure. so, so to me i think bill kind of helped form a lot of this orthodoxy of conservatism in the late 20th century second half 20th century however there's also an impulse to conservatism and that impulse is apparently not shared by a lot of the people we're talking about. Right. Because the reactionary nature, I'm appalled by drag queens reading books to little children. Yeah, I am too. I, I think it's a bad but idea. My impulse to it is not to rethink the Lockean liberal right. order. And, and that is, used to be something we took for granted. The conservatives 
were a bit more methodical and were uh, um, uh, less reactionary, less revolutionary. And, and so the idea, one of the things Sartre did that was fascinating is he didn't make an argument about it. He just sort of mocked the idea. And I hate it when people just simply state something and, and, and we're supposed to accept it as an argument. Right. He said, well, David French thinks you just changed the culture. Right. It's like, I, I'm sorry. Is there, is that bad? Right, <laughs> are, right. Are you, do you have something to say against that? And, and I do actually think there's a, I, I hate to sound like I'm in the middle here because I'm not. I get the frustration. Sure. Of, but of course that's the solution is to change the culture. Right. And, and you're right that the New York context and you're trying to say what another community can do, but let's just change the, that and say we're in that community. Mm-hmm. What would we do about it within that community? And would federal law come in to go protect those cases in the present state we find ourselves in? And I think it would. And I don't think that's any good. Ultimately, within um, the system that we have, the frame of government we have, working within all those channels, like guys like David French have done his whole career and, and, and so many others, that's our best political tactic. But the idea that it would not then be persuasion, school system, school influence, school board, you know, Sunday churches, mm-hmm. community activism, all of those tools at our disposal, which, by the way, have not been taken from us in right. one wit from Barack Obama, from Bill Clinton, right. From and, and if Bernie Sanders is president, I don't believe he'll take away our ability to go try to influence local school boards, this, that, and the other. So th- this is a tension between what my friend Andrew Sandlin call, th- makes the distinction between substantive pluralism and structural pluralism. I do not believe it is okay for drag queens to read to kids and not okay at the same time, substantively. Mm-hmm. I think it is substantively not okay. But as a uh, advocate of the Lockean liberal order, I think it is structurally right. okay and needs to be addressed within the, yeah. the channels available to us. People have a right to be wrong. That's right. And the, the the only thing that makes it a little more complicated with the drag queen thing is because kids are get drawn in, and kids kids are one of these things that you know. As I think Ramesh was the first one to say this, but I've been saying it for years. Um, Libertarianism is the greatest political philosophy ever conceived of. It only has two weaknesses, children and foreign policy, yeah. right? If kids did not exist, the arguments for letting everybody's freak flag fly get a lot stronger, right? But you're trying to raise the next generation. Society has an interest in character formation. It has it. As By just, the way, I will point out to you that most of the hard, hard libertarians don't have kids. There is that. <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom <laughs> in what Ramesh said. Um, but you know, this is the thing on that example. Let's just stick with this drag queen thing because I don't get to say that often. Let's stick with the drag queen. The reality is that going and 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 uh, campaigning in a school board, getting local community involvement, all the kind of grassroots, bottom up stuff, it takes work. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you you have to operate without the assurance of victory. There there are a lot of things that people don't like about it. And this, to me, as a post-millennialist, someone who believes that ultimately into the future, I think we're going to achieve success uh, as the gospel uh, uh, has the impact that we'll inevitably have throughout culture. And I give myself like a three, four thousand year timeline on this. So (laughs) um, I, I feel good about my odds. The reality is that we want it quick and easy, and you're not going to get it right now. Mm-hmm. That's what's creating the frustration. And that's what causes people to say, well, that we just need Donald Trump to go turn everything over and we're going to shake it all up. 
the Lockean liberal order was never intended to create instant success. It was intended to create a, a society by which the opportunity for that movement and progress could take place. And it did. And, and you argue, obviously, in the book that economically we saw rather instant mm-hmm. success, which should not be a surprise to us based on... Although it didn't feel instantaneous in then. actual people. Or even now. You know, I mean, we don't... The, the, That's true. Our ability to measure economic progress in terms of our own life is very, very tough. But if, if you... A visitor from Mars coming once every 50 years would just be astonished at the economic growth in the last 300 years, right? Yeah, what do you think? I know I'm changing the subject, but what do you think? Mark Stein has this whole thing he did in his last book where he argues that all of a sudden that economic progress has stopped, that there was this huge movement, and all of a sudden the refrigerator, air conditioner, these things were huge, but then now, the last 30, 40 years, you wouldn't notice it. And when I first read it, I thought, that's really odd. The internet didn't exist and this and that. But but I think it, he the more I dig into it, the more I kind of disagree with him. I would say that uh, not a, a visitor from Mars would not recognize if they dropped in 1950, and then if they came by 1950, saw it all, got acclimated, and then came back now, they would equally be pokered. It doesn't seem to me that economic. I think that economic rate of progress, not that it is measured in GDP, but it is measured in just the way we empirically judge our lives seems to me to be continuing to grow rapidly. Yeah, I mean, there's the Tyler Cowen stuff about the great stagnation, right? That There's a amplifying effect that you get from certain mechanical, technological improvements that we have... There hasn't been a Moore's Law about the sort of big leaps forward in, in, in improvements. I'm not sure that's true either. And a, it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's true. And so, but, you know, you look at the substitution effect, right? Um, 25 years ago. And again, I don't think the measure of meaning and contentment and the success of society is measured in the material good stuff. I'm not making that argument, but the, the number of things that were considered luxuries that are now no frills, bargain basement things is astonishing from I mean, a good example would be, remember when we were kids, the first time you saw a car with power windows? Oh, yeah. You know, your parents would yell at you because you were just constantly playing with it. Because to you, it was like Star Trek technology, right? You know, it was like, I can just push this button up and down and makes the window go. I don't think they, I've been in a car that has been manufactured in the last five years that has a hand crank window, right? The things our phones do that we sort of take for granted. You know, YouTube is, what, 12 years old? So I do think I, even like I remember first buying a car and this, so I guess it is a good way to put it. Us Gen Xers would have been, uh, there from Gen X to the Gen Y generation, there were these huge moves forward that we could think back to our childhood and now look at stuff and look at it. But within Gen Y, it, there were like within 10 years, you could buy a car and they would brag to you 20 years ago about the CD player that was hidden in the little console. Right. And now they brag to you about how you just walk in the car and instantly your phone just right. downloads all the songs and yeah. they're in your car forever. My car has Wi-Fi? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, right. Things um, I don't even use because it's it, it scares me. Yeah. Um, but to get back to your point you were making before, uh, just real quickly, when you were saying that the locking liberal order never planned for instant success, this gets at this thing, I bring it up from time to time, there's a difference between the progressive vision and the conservative vision, right? And Yuval, was the, Yuval Levin was the first guy to sort of make this point to me. Um, it's in his book about Burke versus Payne. Mm-hmm. And 
a masterpiece of a book. It's a great book. And that, that was that was the basis of his dissert- PhD dissertation. Conservatives, starting with Burke, tend to talk about politics with metaphors about space. Creating zones of liberty, right? The, my favorite example, which I bring up all the time, people actually ask me to sign my book with references to the English versus French garden now. Uh, you know, but the famous example, the example I always use is in the English garden, the whole idea is that the gardener is someone who, pr- who protects and mines the, 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 the garden to allow each plant to be the best version of itself. And so you ward off poachers. But you give it a space, right? In the French garden um, of the Enlightenment era, it's all of this Cartesian curly cues and weird right angles where this, the gardener is like the state imposing a vision that is unnatural, right? So the, the English vision is create a zone of liberty where things are allowed to thrive on their own terms. And the French vision is, no, I know what's best for these plants and this plant needs to look like a pyramid. And so in pain... The, and, and the French revolutionaries, and this is why as an aside, Pinker is, who's brilliant and I like a lot of his stuff, but he's wrong about enlightenments. Not all enlightenments are good. Some are good, some are bad. The, the progressive vision is about getting us to an endpoint. Is about, it's very post. It's utopian. Right. It's utopian. Or it's, yeah, it's, it's utopian, but it's, it's, that all everyone everyone in the society has to be marching together towards some desired goal, right. and therefore the state is the guy on the horseback rounding up people to get them to fall in line and getting everybody to march in formation. And for the Burkean or the conservative, um, and this is very much a Charlie Cook position, right? When he was getting into this argument with Michael Brendan Doherty on the editor's podcast about the French wars, you know, his his point was the point about classical liberalism isn't to find the best way to live, it's to stop people from killing each other. Yeah. And I am very comfortable with that. Yeah. But I think like the first things crowd and these people, they have a fundamentally progressive vision in the sense that they want the state marching us towards, you know, the highest good. And that's a fundamental, that's a first order conflict of visions. But this is the, this is what I would say. I'm not sure that they really want that. I think that what they're doing is carving out a position that forces us to conclude that's what they want. Fair enough. Okay. That they're inferring it, implying it, because they themselves, and this is what Ramesh has said, you have said, Charlie has said, what exactly is the alternative? That's not been answered. It isn't like Rusty Reno's come back and said, here's our post-Lockean vision. They're offering the critiques without solutions, which then allows us, I don't think we're being uncharitable, it allows us to infer that they are looking for that sort of state uh, movement. Well, now, Reno has waxed poetic about the glories of the New Deal. I mean, no, he has. So. He, well, but, uh, so I think that, the, the, and that's why it's interesting here at Acton that, uh, that there is such a compatibility that first things went after them way before they went after the liberal sure. order because ultimately Rusty saw early on that free marketism right. was going to have to be his enemy if he was going to go down this path and and he uh he has been a big critic of markets in in his successful attempt to undo all that Father Richard John Newhouse did at first things but I don't think that they have um carved out uh explicit vision of a statist Alternative. I think that it is the necessary conclusion, lacking any other alternative. But really, yeah. Just to be fair, though, in in conservative world, when arguing amongst conservatives, you need 
if you don't include some to-be-sure statements where you say, look, what I'm not calling for is a theocratic or statist regime, blah, 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 blah. And what you do is write stuff that sounds like you want that. Then you deserve the association. Yeah, I mean... I don't disagree with you at all. But here's what I would say as someone who does want us as a society, as a culture, as a group of people created in the image of God... I do want us, whatever that means, marching towards uh, the highest good, meaning living, flourishing, successful lives uh, in a communion with God, which is, I think, what God created us all for. I'm freely admitting that that is an agenda I have. I want people to live in communion with God. That that sounds really benign to me, but maybe there's some that would be critical of it. It has nothing to do with the state. It has nothing to do with compulsion. It has nothing to do with theocracy. It is uh, um idea that in the course of human affairs, uh, people who live in harmony with one another and live in harmony with their creator have the best opportunity to flourish, to trust and obey, and all the things that a childlike faith would, would implore them to do. Um, that would be something that I would love to see happen in society and that is impossible without the liberal order. Okay, so let me ask. In other words, the liberal order becomes the friend of uh, a virtuous society, not the foe. All right, so uh, let, me, let me ask you something. Just bear with me here, and 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 I just want to hear you talk. Christianity one hundred and one is believes in the universal brotherhood of all mankind. Right, that everybody's soul is worth saving. We're all equal in the eyes of God. I'm not talking about. That we ha- you have to believe in a one world government or anything like that, mm-hmm. but, right, but but the way you're supposed to treat the stranger, it doesn't matter if they're a Mexican or a Uzbek or whatever, right? Yeah. That everybody has human dignity and all that. So let's just imagine, for the sake of argument, that we live in a borderless world. Well, forget a borderless world. Let's just put it this way. I was asked last night about the Benedict option, mm-hmm. right, and. Part of my point was I would much rather see the first things crowd and or whoever <coughs> on the Christian right or the Christian left or whatever or non-Christians, but why not take over Rhode Island yeah. first, right? Why should there be any association with I guess I guess this is the question. The first things guys and these other and a lot of these other guys, they are hung up on this word nationalism. As if, and, and some of it I think is just simply uh, power worship and opportunism. They think nationalism opens doors for them that other words wouldn't. But why should they care? If they, if they could live in a community, a theonomically, you know, a thriving community because it's a community of Christians living Christian lives and therefore in sort of spontaneous emergence, they live in accordance with biblical laws and all of the rest. Why should... That why shouldn't be taking over Rhode Island, um, and I don't mean with guns. I just mean everybody moving there, and then just simply through strength of numbers, creating a community that is in accordance with their values. Why is that not preferable? Why go for the uh, tactically or ideologically or both? Both. I mean, like, why go? It is, and and, and here's the thing, and uh, uh, you probably have already put away your Bible that you were reading earlier this morning here at the hotel. But I'll, there's a passage in Deuteronomy I, uh, uh, that that's the whole idea was that a community would function. In this case, it was Old Testament Israel, and that they would obey the law of God, 
They would have their ducks in a row, and then other nations would look and say, look at this nation that has all their stuff together. We want to be more like that. Right. And the city on a hill example, Reagan was really good about constantly kind of almost preaching about that passage. I think that that's exactly what the tactic ought to be is is uh, federalism, subsidiarity, localism, the things you talk mm-hmm. about all the time. But I would argue it's not even just in the civic realm. Let's just start with the guy who wakes up in the morning and immediately calls another guy to come to his hotel room. You know, <laughs> How is his integrity, his manner doing business, his character, his civility, his virtue? And then the family and their local church, their community build those things up and then civically let's get you know small town rhode island get some good people city council school board nothing's compulsory Mm -hmm. everything is done within the kind of classical liberal tradition and done with uh, a view towards culture and and so forth it would then end up building and you would have a better chance of impacting a state and ultimately but see in that whole system in a world where that was the thinking Washington, D.C. wouldn't be Washington, D.C. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. The, the, the whole reason, there's a kind of chicken or egg thing going on that Washington, D.C.'s became the federal behemoth because there was an abandonment of localism and there was an abandonment of localism as D.C. became this behemoth. Yeah. And I think there's things... That, no, there's a catalytic effect. That's, I think that's right. All right. We should do a little quick economics for the... Greatest <laughs> economy in the history of the world. <laughs> um, but the Fed has got to cut rates... That's right. Or immediately <laughs> and, and stimulate. Yeah, the kind of, you know, it's interesting. The, um, I had to get back to the hotel last night to write a little piece on the, on the Fed. They ruled yesterday that they weren't going to be cutting rates. But they signaled that they're going to. Not right? just signaled, he guaranteed. The Fed funds futures market this morning at 3.45 a.m. is pricing a 100% chance of a rate cut in July. So they will cut in July. And the only question is whether or not they'll cut a quarter point or half a point. And if they do a quarter point in July, they'll cut another quarter point in the fall. We're going to end the year at minimum half a point less than we are now. And that basically is taking back the two rate hikes they did in September and then December of last year. And you say, okay, well, um, maybe that's the right thing to do. However, how is it compatible with 3.6% unemployment, potentially another 3% plus year in real GDP growth? And so forth. And and this is where, and again, it gets off the politics of it and the kind of the whole thing of Fed independence. I, I'm not, I'm critical of President Trump, as you are for a lot of things. Him barking at Chairman Powell, it, it doesn't bother me the way it bothers others in the sense that I don't really take it seriously. And I'm mm. quite positive Chairman Powell doesn't take it seriously. But also, no other administration, the Fed independence thing has been a joke for a 100 years. Mm-hmm. And so Trump's just basically more transparent about what a joke it is. However, there is a real tension going on in the economy right now that I think transcends the political. And that is that we got ourselves addicted to a uh, treatment post-crisis. And there is no precedent in history of a patient getting off of that treatment. And that is the treatment of monetary accommodation. Mm. And so this is deeper than what I've written a lot about over the years. Greenspan sort of, 1998, Greenspan cut rates and the economy was growing at 5.4%. The economy was wildly uh, successful growing at the technology boom and all those things. And then, but then there was uh, the Russian ruble crisis. There were some emerging markets hiccups. 
long-term capital manager, this big hedge fund imploded. Right. Greenspan. It was a Mexican bailout in there. And somewhere. that was the year before. And so yeah. you had these different events and Greenspan kind of, that's where the term was coined, Greenspan put, became the Fed put. And it's very much alive today, now 21 years later. I think what happened is, for right or for wrong, the, the Fed flooded us with liquidity post-crisis. And no one has absolutely any idea what is it's going to take to undo that. Mm-hmm. And I do not go to the Japan analogy because there are legitimately some significant differences between us and Japan, primarily demographic. Uh, there's also a lot of cultural differences. We are very pro-growth society, the highly educated and aspirational. But we right now have a Fed funds rate that is so far below the natural rate and they're having to cut it further mm-hmm. And my feeling is it is very much like that the alcoholic who has to keep having a drink to avoid his hangover, that mm-hmm. sort of hair of the dog thing. Um, that can go on for multiple days. Mm-hmm. That binge, it can keep you from reckoning. But at some point, the hangover comes and, and it doesn't get better. It gets worse. That's where I think the economy is right now. But what I would not do is try to time it. I don't know when the day of reckoning comes, but they, I would be very concerned right now about the fact that our society is addicted to low interest rates. And mm-hmm. I don't see that changing anytime soon. So is the, is the argument for why he's cutting it because Protectionism is inherently inflationary, no. and the head. What, what is first the, of all, protectionism is not inherently inflationary. It's, I, I think it is. It is deflationary because it suppresses demand. Ultimately, the consumer just quits buying things, so it suppresses demand and it deflates. Mm-hmm. The argument, and it isn't political either. He's not sitting there responding. It's entirely about credit markets. Mm-hmm. They built up four trillion dollars of liquidity, dollar liquidity floating around the society that got put to work. And I would argue mostly got put to work productively. If it didn't get work produ- put to work productively, it would have been inflationary, and it was mm. not. This is where a lot of that Lou Rockwell crowd was wrong. And frankly, I think even Kevin Williamson admitted he kind of got this one wrong. Mm-hmm. The Glenn Beck types were talking about, oh, back with QE, it's going to be inflationary. All understandable errors, but they were errors because they ignored the lack of velocity of money. That money was not turning over. Mm-hmm. It just stayed on bank shelves. It was a manipulative tool to hold long-term interest rates down. But what it did is it said to corporate America, lever up. Mm-hmm. And so we knew the government was levering up. The household was delevering. But then you see now all of the new credit instruments that came into the economy, the middle market lending, the senior bank loan market, investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, $4 trillion of new debt instruments in the last nine years. Hmm. Debt to earnings, debt to equity ratios have come up substantially, not in any bubble-like term, and there's very little defaults. Because their cost of capital mm-hmm. is all lower than the return on capital. Mm-hmm. At some point, that inverts, and that's what we call a recession. Right. When the return on capital comes beneath the cost of capital. So instead of us focusing in our economy and in our society on higher return on capital, more growth, more innovation, more technology, more hiring, more good projects and pursuits, in the Hayekian tradition of focusing on return on capital, which is essentially what Hayek would have supported, we're focusing on the cost of capital. Let's just manipulate that as low as we can. Because mm-hmm. as long as we have a spread there, the economy is in a healthy position. 
The problem is they can only manipulate the cost of capital for so long. But that's the reason the Fed needs to keep the rates low is because they need to keep the cost of capital below the return on capital and just buy us time for the return on capital to magically go higher. But ultimately, my argument is it's the debt overhang makes it very hard for the return on capital to go higher because it's crowding out private sector mm-hmm. and it has led to a disincentive to go invest into 20-year projects. So change the topic slightly. The, the Trump tax cuts, uh, the argument you hear from a lot of people in Washington was that the problem was is that there was no directive from the government about how these essentially corporations we're going to spend the the proceeds of these tax cuts. And so they put all of the windfall into stock buybacks. And so that's not stimulative in the way that I'm not making this case. I'm just, this is the case you hear all the time. And that's not stimulative. Uh, We should have put in mandates for R and D or expansion or something like that. Just intuitively, I really don't, I don't mind tinkering at the edges, you know, because we're in that game of putting some conditions on what corporations do for basically free money from a tax cut. But as a general well, problem, well, 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 that right there is important. Free getting their own money back. Well, no, I don't. I don't mean it like that. I just okay. mean like if they have a choice between getting a tax cut and not getting a yeah. tax cut, and there's some strings attached to the tax cut, I'd rather not have strings attached to the tax cut. But you know, it's the way this way politics works. But intuitively, it just feels to me wrong that saying that stock buybacks are a bad idea, are, are inherently bad, and that the federal government can, through the tax code, manipulate corporations into spending money better than the corporations themselves know how to spend it. Yeah, it's forget the political statism of it. Economically, it is so irrational as to be dangerous. I get the talking point on MSNBC about it, but let's just start with the facts. The the um. Stock buybacks were not where this money went. Uh-huh. They were, uh, it increased as you would expect, um, to some degree. Dividend payments, uh, increased. In both cases, that represents capital return to shareholder. It does not represent sterilized money. Right. In the economy, it is still a significantly more efficient allocation of capital than going to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. However, Debt reduction was one of the major uh, uh, uses of capital, and M&A became a much big one, and I would argue efficient M&A. So you had merger, you had synergies being created, more efficient activity within corporate America. Uh, but here's the thing that um, is being totally ignored is CapEx, capital expenditures from companies, business investment from the last month of the Obama presidency until the last month where where the China trade deal appeared to be blowing up you had an unbelievable explosion in capital goods spending in what in the GDP ratio we call non-residential fixed investment, which mm-hmm. is basically business investment. So that business confidence drove a much higher business investment. And the most ignored part of the tax bill was the instant expensing. So rather than more complicated long-term depreciation schedules, they got to write off what they were going to put in right away highly stimulative and I would argue supply side. Mm -hmm. That's not a sugar high. That goes on for for many years because presumably these really smart business proprietors are taking their instant expense deduction on a project that they believe is good for their business and is going to grow revenues and, 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 and activity and demand and all those things. 
So I'm a big defender of the corporate side of the of the tax cut. Uh, the individual side of it was almost a complete waste of time, and most people now recognize that. Um, I, I, but we won't go down that path. As far as the business side of it, the problem to me was that within six months of its passage and all of the really genuinely beneficial things that got done through that legislation, he counteracted it with the trade war. Right. And so then you're a company, you're, a CE, you're in the C-suite of a big business, and you go, hey, we have this great money now. People don't like that we're spending some on stock buybacks, but it's a more efficient allocation of capital than it was before, regardless of how much one thinks it is. And so then what do we want to do with this money? Well, let's go invest in this, this, or this, but wait a second. The China trade thing lingers. Let's wait and see. Right. Well, here we are now. It's a full year later, and we still don't know the resolution. And the outcomes go anywhere from next week they're going to be bear hugging and merging Trump and G families together <laughs> to uh, a generational elimination of commerce with China, as like right. a Steve Bannon would be advocating, for. right? Uh, and or anywhere in between. So if you're in the C-suite of a multi-multi-billion-dollar company, do you make any lasting long-term decisions right now? Right. I think that that's the real problem. The stimulative effects of the tax cuts are still there, but they're muted relative to what they could have been. Yeah, no, it's funny because, I mean, I remember this was a... And I remember Jonathan Chait and all these guys getting furious about this argument about how the economy wasn't growing because of uncertainty under Obama and that the... Uncertainty of what the Obama administration was going to do was this huge wet blanket on economic growth, and every conservative bought into this, including me. And I and I actually still think it's a correct argument. It is, yeah. Um, and now you talk about uncertainty with the with the trade stuff, and you get these eyes glaze over from Trump supporters, and it's like, well, what's the difference? I mean, it's the most common argument I hear is, yeah, yeah, I know it's probably true, but at least finally someone's standing up to China, and you're okay. So, so he's standing up to China. There's some things that need to be addressed, IP theft, all that. I'm just simply, as an economist, pointing out, for good or for bad, you can't deny that it has that effect. Sure. And uh, we need to be aware of the fact. What I, my fear is it gives the Krugmans a potential 20-year argument against supply-sideism mm-hmm. if that it does compress the benefits of that marginal reduction of corporate tax co- uh, rates Right. That it will distort the kind of historical record of what could have been. Right, right. And and so we'll, we'll see how that part plays out. But no, I think that in the economy, uh, back to the Fed stuff too, when you talk, look at long-term investment decisions, so there was the Obama uncertainty, what's going to happen now, there's trade war. But look, I also think $21 trillion of debt and a Fed that looks very likely to monetize it into the future and a sort of Japanification of our economy, I don't know why you would make a lot of 20-year decisions there either. Yeah. And the bond market doesn't get mocked easily. The A, two per, a 2% yield on the 10-year treasury uh, with trillions of the smartest dollars on God's green earth is telling you one thing. Eh, let's hang tight, see what's going on here. Yeah. That's it. And, and the bond market will not be uh, mocked. And that's, to me, where things stand. Now, ultimately... I don't think that there's an easy solution. Certainly not a pain-free one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump can get through the trade war thing. I hope that he will. Right. But the Fed cannot come out and just say, we're going to take our medicine. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to kind of nurse this thing around a little bit. And that's the tangled web you weave when you went down an interventionist approach. They're going to have to unwind it. But I think that on the tax cut side, 
Uh, if President Trump's reelected and somehow there's enough legislative mandate, there are some things they could do to make the thing even more stimulative that would be pro-growth. Um, I think that they were operating within a certain bandwidth, but they really didn't get anything done on the individual side. And if it'll be interesting to see what happens into the second term, because if the Dem if uh, Democrat wins the White House, I don't think they're going to be able to unwind this this tax code. It's amazing. I saw a few old Obama advisors that were saying the right rate for the corporate tax code, excuse me, corporate tax rate should be 25%. Mm. And Trump said it at 21. And I was thinking, well, it's 35 under Obama. Why didn't they bring it to 25 then? Right, right. They're all sort of acknowledging it needs to be lower, right. but it makes them sound more progressive to say we'd still have done it a little higher than Trump did. What it, just, and I know we have to wrap this up, but um, I still, if people look at me, like I'm taking crazy pills. I, I truly don't understand what the argument is against the revenue aside, right? Just as, as a moral proposition, what is wrong with a 0% corporate tax rate? Oh, I completely agree with you. And so I'm not looking at you with any eyes. Uh, <laughs> In your in your hotel room, <laughs> <laughs> look away, look away, <laughs> no um, <eye> contact. <laughs> it's a double taxation by definition. Yeah. Uh, now I'll play devil's advocate. The argument is it would become a very potent tax shelter as people would keep money in the corporation, not distribute it, and defer paying taxes right. on it. And everyone would self incorporate. Of course, all, it's yeah. and that's fine. They can self incorporate, but the point is that at the point of distribution. It, became, it would become taxable, and there's very, very few people that could afford to never distribute. I mean, the right. whole point of wealth creation is at some point it is distributable. But yeah, that is exactly right. To me, uh, now the politics of it, it's a non-starter. Sure, 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 sure. But yes, the reality, and for the right and the left, I mean, even people on the right will say, oh, we don't need to hand out to corporations. And the basic economic principle that a corporation doesn't pay taxes is totally lost on bulk of society. Right. The corporation, all you're talking about is either they're going to pass on to their shareholders or to their customers and or their employees. It's generally a combination of all the above. But in Dave and Jonah land, it uh, to me, you would have an appropriately set rate on individuals. The corporation would not pay taxes. It would free up more wages, more uh, wealth creation for all stakeholders of the company. And then they would then be paying a higher percentage of taxes on an individual level. Yeah, because I mean, so what I find fascinating about it is that on the left there is deep and abiding rage against nor notions of corporate personhood, both uh, both as a legal fiction. Uh, you know, the, I've actually listened to like uh, move on conferences or those kinds of things on C-SPAN where they have speakers who get people to chant "corporations aren't people," and um, and yet the whole argument about taxing corporations derives from an anthropomorphization. Yeah. Of corporations, right? right? They're saying these are evil things. Well, wait a second. If they're not people, then they're inanimate objects or legal fictions, and treating them as if they're things that need to be punished is weird, but right? See, this is where <laughs> this is a great example why rhetoric matters. Yeah, and why populism is so dangerous. This is not something that's happened because people have formulated uh, economic fallacy. They've done that too. Right. This has purely come about from classic William Jennings Bryant. Uh, uh, class warfare. Right. The the rhetoric against what we would call a corporation is completely anti-intellectual. Yeah. 
And so what we have is a political environment where to say we need a friendlier environment for corporations is to basically generate an image of a Wall Street fat cat and right. all this type of stuff. Ultimately, though, as a matter of good sound policy, there'd be very little you could do for the economy that would be more stimulative than exactly what we're suggesting. Yeah. And they said, well, no, corporations would just hide more of the money or this or that. But that's ridiculous. The, the, the demand right now on C-suites to create a higher return on equity is huge. Right. They can't create a higher return on equity without investing into new projects. And, and that's what has been missing. That business investment would, not just with job creation, wage growth, but I think it would also improve the quality of life in the society. I do too. And we always talk about that with R&D and the drug sector. But that doesn't even get into what various food innovations. Look, I'm a meat eater. Right. And I will be forever till the day I die, which might be earlier than it otherwise would be because I like meat so much. This Beyond Meat stuff, which is this vastly overvalued, absurd stock. Uh, but it, I think it's intriguing. It is It is a capitalist Sure. Uh, 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 innovation. Yeah. And I think you could just have things like this that would just be unleashed. But, um, the reality is that we're debating the other side of it. We're debating if we even want to allow corporations anymore in a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth right. Warren world. Yeah. It's very strange to me. I just, as an intellectual matter, it just seems obvious to me that corporate taxes are taxes on consumers and, um, if you got rid of corporate taxes, you would have more corporations with more employees, and that would be a good thing. So do you think a good summary of the podcast is what we need is more theonomists that are looking forward to a post colonial eschatology that are uh, living in the classical liberal order that recognize the need for more favorable conditions for corporations? Yes. And <laughs> I think you've actually just dictated the show notes for this podcast. Dave Bonson, I will, I'm going to record a new intro to this to actually tell people who you are and where you work, because... Uh, we didn't do that at the top. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Sean. How's that macabre rictus for you? <laughs> At least I had a reason for it this time. You did. Are you, are you recording? Mm-hmm. All right, great. Because this is, this is gold right here. Um, <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. Greetings, dear listener. The Buddha judge. Greetings, dear listener. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> it's good scotch. 